Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. We wanted to take a moment to thank everyone that's reviewed us on Apple Podcasts so far. We really appreciate your reviews. They go a long way, especially those five-star reviews. Really help us gain notoriety and help other people to see the content that we're producing here. I wanted to read a five-star review from E. Terwell. They said, fun and educated hosts. Excited to hear all the various hosts of this podcast have to offer on books, pop culture, the Zodiac, and their individual walks of life. A huge thank you to E. Terwell for reviewing us and saying all those kind things. And we just ask that if you are also enjoying listening to this podcast and what we have to say, that you head on over to Apple Podcasts and drop us a five-star review. It'll really help us in the long run. Now let's get back to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Feminist Book Club podcast. It's Natalia, and it's been a while, but I'm here with Natalia Sylvester, the author of Breathe and Count Back from 10. Now, Natalia, I'm going to start with the biggest elephant in the room. We're both named Natalia. I know. I'm so excited. (laughs) Is this the first time you've done an interview with somebody that shares your name? absolutely like right now when you introduced yourself I had to like actually when you introduced both of us I had to control myself and not like squeal and say well, like us that's both of us yeah. um, it's the I, squared I'm gonna I may make that the title of this episode we'll see what happens I'm here for it. <laughs> um so this interview has been a long time coming and I'm so excited I'm so excited I have repeatedly fangirled uh, with you, over you, about you, any prepositional phrase you want to insert here on Twitter. I've talked to all of my IRL friends about this book, about running, just about everything. <laughs> um, so this is super cool for me. So my apologies, listeners, if there's no chill. Um, <laughs> I don't really think any of you expected that anyways, but let's, let's dive in. Let's do you see what I did that? I did. I that. love it. Yes. <laughs> Let's dive in and talk about count or breathing count back from 10. Give us your synopsis of the book, how you would want someone to tell their friends about the book. So, yeah, I love that. Um, so breathing count back from 10 is about a 17 year old Peruvian American teen named Vero, who was born with hip dysplasia, which I was also born with. She grew up in Central Florida. She's had many surgeries as a child. The place that she feels safest is the water because that's where she doesn't feel her chronic pain as much. And it's where she doesn't have to worry about people staring at her scars or judging the way she walks. And she also happens to live in a town that has a mermaid theme park where performers dance underwater with mermaid tails. And she learns that they're going to have auditions the summer before her senior year. And she deep down inside wants to audition, but she is the daughter of immigrants who want her to pursue the American dream. Mm -hmm. And they're not a big fan of that trajectory for her. At the same time, she's falling hard for the cute new boy that just moved into her apartment complex. And her parents are also very anti relationship of any kind and so she's navigating all these things um like chasing her dreams like stepping into her own sexuality without shame all during this summer that she hopes to become a mermaid honestly if the summer before senior year wasn't a transformational summer for everyone I feel like they're lying um just looking back at my own life that summer was so pivotal so pivotal in the trajectory of my life So there are a couple of things that I definitely want to unpack in this interview besides just how good the book is. I think that there are conversations to be had about the standards that writers of color are held to as opposed to white authors when they are publishing a book that's instantly hailed as a classic, a universal tale, something that could, oh, just everybody relates to. I followed on Twitter your comment about a reviewer 
who said that while she liked the book, she couldn't relate to Vero because she was Peruvian. And there were just experiences that weren't relatable to her. Um, and I, I actually laughed out loud because the most formative and transformational books of my life are Journey to the Center of the Earth by Jules Verne, uh, A Little Princess, and Pollyanna. And I am not German scientists in the 1800s. I am not an orphan, blonde missionary daughter uh, in, I don't even remember where she went. Oh, she went to the East Coast, uh, who was from Oklahoma. Nor am I the orphan of a rich, rich British colonial uh, soldier who died in India. And yet these books are the foundation of my being. There's nothing at all <laughs> that I relate to. And so I'm sitting here reading this review or like hearing about this review. And I know that you were deeply hurt. I don't mean to make light of your uh, reaction to it. That's not what I mean to do at all. But it just made me laugh that you're being held to this standard. And every writer of color and author of color that I know of has been held to this standard. But meanwhile, Sally Rooney can make the same book about the same basic bitches all the time. And nobody bats an eye on that. And nobody calls her out for not being universal. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Um, definitely, because I feel like it's something we don't talk about. And it definitely needs to be discussed from an author's perspective, not from a reader's perspective as well. Yeah. Oof. Oh my gosh. How much time do we have? Right. Um, <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts on this, but I think that what hurts the most, and, and again, I tweeted about this experience, not because it was actually an exception and it was just the one that, you know, what's the expression of the straw that broke the camel's yep. back. I'm horrible at idioms, by the way, but, um, you know, it was just, the, it was just one too many. It was too, you know, things that I've heard before in very coded ways, like from the first time my book, from when I first tried to publish my book, my first novel in 2012, hearing from editors who often said, we don't know how we would market this. We want it to reach a very wide audience. And we think this is too niche when speaking about my Latinx characters. And every time I hear this term about wide audience, I really only hear white. It, it's very um, discouraging when you're trying to write a, a story that to you, and again, I don't know why we even put so much pressure on our universality, but to me, my experiences feel universal because I've lived them my whole life. That if I'm just trying to write my truth, suddenly to this very white-centered, um, white catering industry that mostly prioritizes their white readers and, their, and the comfort of those white readers, to suddenly my truth just feels like an obstacle towards understanding, it's incredibly hurtful. And then to see that flipped that when a white author then does write marginalized experience, whether it's one, it's, it's, it's one they've experienced themselves or whether they haven't, which we have a whole other conversation there, right? But when they do that, <clears throat> all I can think of is American dirt at that point. And just like, what were you thinking? Anyways, anyways, you're, I'm sorry, go on. No, but when they do that, it suddenly praised as if they are transcending um, and doing something so important and as if they are taking readers on this incredible journey. And all I can think about is the, this metaphor of like tourism. Yeah, that's all it is. It's, yeah. it's writing, it, it's like uh, my issue with Rick Bayless and this is very weird, but follow me for a minute. Mm -hmm. Rick Bayless super popular, super famous for writing cookbooks about Mexican recipes, Mexican experiences, Mexican food culture. He is, oh my God, the greatest, fantastic. Everybody goes to his restaurant, Frontera, blah, 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 blah. But the same Mexican cookbook author gets mm -hmm. zero praise, gets zero funding, gets zero publishing efforts, who's trying to write about their stories because I know we can't, who's going to want to read about your ta -ta 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 abuela 
who made this recipe for mole that's been passed down for 17 generations and has powered an entire community through the Mexican Revolution. It it's it is experienced tourism. It's almost like inspiration porn, but of the worst kind because it's actively shutting down authors of color. It also just speaks to so much to like which voices we uh, as a culture are which voices are set up and amplified as the authorities. Um, it says a lot that publishing seems to think that, you know, white authors' voices will be the ones that are universal, will be the ones that essentially get trusted with these stories and readers then go along. It, it's almost like, even if we wanna take the tourism metaphor even further, it's like, who are you trusting to be the guide in this so-called experience? and are we only, do we trust white authors more because there's going to be a certain comfort level, a certain catering to a majority white readers experience that is being prioritized over everyone else who gets shut out of that. Versus if I'm telling a story, I'm thinking of my community, I'm thinking I'm prioritizing their needs and their comfort because it, specifically because we live in a world that has so often actively harmed them. And so, yeah, I want as many people to, to, to reach, to, you know, to read my story, but there's a difference between who a story is written for and its reach. Yeah. And so I believe that our stories are just as universal as anyone else's. I kind of want to pick that up though, with the actual craft of how the novel is written. So in the novel, you go back and forth between English and Spanish. And what I love is that you don't translate the Spanish. It is not, it's not othering. It's not like, oh, I hate it when they do that in books where it's like, oh yeah, she's crazy. It just drives me insane as a reader who speaks Spanish. And I understand the flip side of that is that somebody might feel like they're not getting the full experience, but is every experience for everyone? No, that's, I mean, that's the whole argument that we're making is that some experiences by virtue of what they are, can't be for everyone, but it doesn't mean that they don't deserve to be told and shared to a broader audience. And it's, uh, it's seen in like shows like reservation dogs, from what I understand, apparently native, um, folk who watch it, have like this other total complete layer in that show that as a non-native person, I have no idea about. And you know what? That's cool. That's okay. Consumption is not for me, for my consumption. It's a nod to the community itself. Exactly. And you still enjoy it, which is also really beautiful. Like again, kind of going back to who it's written for and what their reach is. Do you know how many books growing up were never written for a a young Peruvian you know, girl growing up in Miami, um, only learning English. Like I read so many books in which I was mispronouncing words, not understanding their meanings, not understanding cultural references. I still ended up loving those stories, loving those characters because there were also other parts, you know, other parts of the story that were still, yeah, that you could, exactly. And so to me, that's really why I don't bother translating because I think to translate would be a signal to my community that I'm not writing for them. It's it's yeah. as if having a conversation with someone, looking at them and then turning around to look at someone else. That's what translating would be. Yeah. And second of all, a lot of times it's not even about, the most important thing about when I do use Spanish is not so much what the word means, it's the feel of the word. It's Correct. the emotional response that the word gives just by being there. So it's not, it doesn't have a direct translation. It's just something that's meant to tell a reader, you know, these words are words I use at home. Mm -hmm. Words are words that when I'm at these very specific, in, in this very specific emotional place, these are the words I reach for. And if those words remind you of home too, then how wonderful, then you can feel at home in these pages. Love it. I loved it. I also loved the dictionary element. So at the beginning of each chapter in this novel, 
there's a word that's defined that kind of gives an emotion or a vibe for the rest of the chapter. But what's fascinating is it's not just the like Merriam-Webster translation of the word, you know, it's Vero's take on the word as well. And there were some that broke me before I even started the chapter, like uh, her definition of boundary, for example, which I'm not going to spoil because it it really matters within the context of the novel. But then there are others that just made me feel like, is this what it's like when people understand poetry? Holy shit, this is amazing. (laughs) Um. So I just, I love that idea of centering your people, but recognizing that other, others will gain benefit from it. And honestly, is that not what we've been trying to advocate for pretty much the entire time we've been here is that as immigrants, as first generation immigrants or first generation Americans are home stories matter just as much as our outside stories. Yeah. Um, and you can learn from us just as much as we can learn from you. Yeah. I just, I think it's such a good idea. And it's, you mentioned words that you've never heard pronounced correctly. The word kernel. Oh gosh. Yeah. <laughs> That's not fair. <laughs> it's really not. And I had read that word a gajillion and a half times and I am a fairly smart person and I had to do out or like a, a reading aloud exercise mm-hmm. in my AP literature class. And I said, and you know, Colonel, whatever. Yeah. Everybody laughed and awesome. my teacher laughed. And I just remember feeling like this big, yeah. <laughs> just like bigger than a grain of rice and being so embarrassed. But when other classmates got words wrong. Nobody really laughed at them, but that's neither here nor there. And I digress. Um, I love that you bring up the dictionary though, because you know, so much of Vero's story um, is about how we define things on our own terms. And her journey is actually very much uh, like the, the journey. I see that her journey towards her truth as one that has to first go through a bunch of lies and dismantle those lies. And so that's why, you know, there's the little mermaid myth woven throughout the story and that she's obsessed with the little mermaid myth and she has memorized even lines about it. But as the more she repeats certain lines, she realizes that they're glorifying pain. Mm-hmm. And the, the same thing goes with the Wakachina myth, which is a Peruvian mermaid myth that's also woven into the story that she and her mom retell together and they kind of create a new story from it because it's an oral uh, it's passed down orally we don't you know for I come from an island country I'm Dominican I don't know that there are mermaid myths or at least if there are my family has really chose the route of assimilation instead of um like acclimatization or whatever so those we don't really tell those stories but when I was reading the Wakachina story I'm like (laughs) this is perfect. Oh. I love this. I definitely want to tell it to my kids. And oh, and then how she flipped it in the end was just, it was so, so great. Oh God. Okay. So let's talk about in, in that, let's talk about the relationships that she has with others, because it's so fascinating as somebody who kind of had a lot of those same relationships growing up how you have the one friend that's like, Rebecca, I don't know why you can't go to a sleepover. And you're just like, I'm Hispanic. You know, like it's a joke, but, but it's true, right? There are things that our friends who are not Peruvian or Dominican or Puerto Rican will never understand. And to this day, now I'm raising children and I'm, I'm like, doing the same things to them. And I hear them say to their friends, sorry, Mallory, you, my mom's Spanish. You just wouldn't understand. And I'm like, Oh, <laughs> but any, anywho. So she's got her best friend in the world yes. who is, Oh, I just, I love her so much. And then she's got her sister who I would, I mean, I'm not here to tell you what's right next, 
But if you want to write that whole story from uh, her sister's perspective, that would be fascinating. Oh, I love that. Fascinating. Because I, I, I love it so much. And then there's my main boy, Alex, whom I love. <laughs> I love. And before we started recording, I did ask for a spoiler uh, or for more information that counts as a spoiler. And um, I just want you guys to know that I know this and you don't, and that's okay with me. <laughs> but how did you create this, the non-parental mm-hmm. cast of characters? How did they come about? Did they come to you? Did you know she was going to have a sister by the, from when the story started? Did you know who her best friend was going to be or the kind of person that she was going to be? Or did this all kind of happen organically. I always love hearing writers talk about like the characters in their book and how they came about it. It always fascinates me. I love that. Yeah. I mean, I think they, you know, they obviously, they did evolve pretty organically, but they always evolve with either, they always start from either a feeling or a memory or an image. So for example, with Leslie, it was very much like, she just really, for me, encapsulated so many of my friends growing up, especially when I was growing up in central Florida, I had I, I actually, all my friends were white. There weren't that many, um, you know, Latinx kids in my neighborhood or in my school. And they, we were, you know, we'd spend all our days together and yet we went home to different worlds and we had, we walked through the world with different rules. And that's both in the literal sense of our parents who were just, my parents were much more strict uh, than their parents were. And so my friends had a lot more freedom than I did. And yet that's also because I think my parents understood that we lived in a country and in a society that wasn't going to let me play by the same rules as my white friends. Uh, And not only that, but yeah, we also have our own cultural things that are being passed down through generations. You know, Vero's parents do, you know, they have a lot of machismo that they Mm -hmm. impose on her. There's a lot of slut shaming that she has to deal with. And reading some of those passages in particular was like hearing my Theas just in, in my ear, you know, I, I was a walking hormone in my middle and high school years. And I look back on that with the lens of an adult. And I think I wasn't doing anything different than what my friends were doing. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't like, I just wasn't as bad as they all said, but according to my family, oh my gosh, I was the sluttiest, the worst, the, I had too much libertinaje. I was all of these things and they would, they would come down on me. They would come down on my mom. And then a lot of it became el que dirán, right? Like, what is your family going to say about this? And and what is society going to say about how I'm raising you as a single parent about this? And I, I've never, I, I tweeted about this, um, but I've never had a unique experience in my life because reading that book, I was just like, yep, this happened to me, this happened to me, this happened to me. And it's, it's inspiring that, uh, authors can just take all of these feelings that I didn't even know I had and just put them on a page for me. Like, oh, here you go. You're going to read them. Um, but that's so true. And her mom, I felt so conflicted because I am a mom and I know what, I know what I want for my children. I know that I want the best for them. I know how the world will see them. And yet I am also a product of a strict mother and of a culture that doesn't appreciate me as a woman or appreciates me in a very limited sense as a woman. And you could see some of that and how her mom told the, uh, the Huacachina story. And I just, who would she have been if she was raised in the United States? Mm. What kind of person would she have been? Would she have been like our little second wave feminist, just like riding or die? Just, Oh, I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. And those are questions that I think American, white American or not, you ask of your parents, you wonder who they would have been if they had grown up in different circumstances. And we go back to, yeah, we may be talking about this in Spanish and the food on my table may look different than yours, but at the end of the day, are they not all fundamentally human questions and fundamentally human experiences that matter? 
Yeah. It's definitely something to, to consider as we try to expand our reading universe yeah. and read books from different perspectives, for sure. Um, but Leslie was a riot and made me laugh so much. I had a best friend that was just like Leslie. Leslie made me laugh too. I loved her so much. I love how fiercely supportive she is of Vero. Um, and the same too for Danny, like her sister Danitza. The Danny came to me in an image. I just pictured a, a young girl who cartwheeled instead of walking, instead of walked every once in a while. And that was like the first line I wrote about her is when Vero says, a really cute but annoying thing about my sister is sometimes she just starts cartwheeling instead of walking. And it just brought to mind such a, you know, she's just this ball of energy. She's super athletic. She like she has so much freedom in terms of physical movement of her body that Vero doesn't have. And so they, again, they share a bedroom, they share parents, they share a home, but they live in two different worlds. And I've, I'm always really fascinated by that, by the way that even when we're close, we're completely different universes to one another. Um, so that was- you watch cars driving on the highway and you've yes. that moment where you recognize that every car has a different story going on in it. Mm-hmm. You have no idea what that story is. I don't know. I, I think about that often. I try telling my, um, my kids about that once and they were just like mom you're so weird (laughs) (laughs) but in terms of Vito's disability and it's I think as a person who considers herself abled temporarily right like I am only ever able-bodied and I don't I please correct me if that's not the right term to use but as a person who doesn't have chronic pain or a chronic disability that restricts my mobility, but who, because I'm approximately 9,000 months pregnant, is disabled in terms of like having to think of spaces differently. How do I walk in this space? How do I, do they have on-site wheelchairs that I can borrow so that I can actually enjoy this space? Um, so I, I fluctuate between this this state of being, I think what I enjoyed the most as a reader is that at no point in time was Vero ashamed of herself. Like Mm -hmm. watching that, I've read stories with characters who were disabled, who were written by able-bodied people. And (laughs) it was not great. (laughs) Like there was an inherent shame built into these characters. And I you didn't do that for Vero. And I, I know that that has to come from your own experiences, but then like when you were a teenager, did you ever, did you ever pass by that experience? Did you ever like allow yourself to wallow in, you know, damn it. Why can't I, why can't I, why can't I, instead of just, this is the life that I have. And these are the boundaries that I have, but it doesn't make me anything less. It just makes it's normal for me. So I don't, I don't see why it has to be a big deal for someone else. I hope that made sense. It made sense in my head as I was saying. It totally makes sense. And I think you hit upon something so central to the the book is that I didn't want Vero to have to carry that shame because it's not hers to carry. It's imposed on her. It's thrust on her. And it's part of, again, why I say lies are a big part of this book is that that shame is another lie that she has to um, dismantle and that that she rejects and I wish that I could say that when I was young I was just as you know unapologetic as Vero but the truth is I also had a lot of internalized ableism that you know it made me that and I had to work through that before I could write this book and that's why I think that distance was really important that I wrote it as an adult but I wrote it for my teen self because I wrote it wishing that this is what my teen self could have known and that Vero gets to learn it through the, through her story, I hope will help someone else learn it sooner than I did. And that, you know, she, she has, she doesn't want to change, change who she is. She wishes the world would change and not be so ableist and not constantly judge her and make her feel less than because she knows she's not less than. The- and- the moments where Danitza or her mom are, are 
I wonder if even consciously watching her like a hawk to see, am I limping? Am I doing this? Am I walking any differently? And just the, the weight of that gaze, I felt, I'm like, oh, I feel that. I feel that. What, what a burden for her to have to carry that. But what a joy that at the end, she's just, she, like you said, she doesn't internalize that. And she just wishes that they would change in response to her and not that she would have to change in response to their actions. Um, yeah, but I, remember, I, I just, that part struck me so, so hard. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like I wanted, I know we earlier, before we tar- started recording, we were talking about safety and I just, I really wanted, if the world was not going to be the super safe place for Vero, which it isn't, um, I, I needed to at least create spaces in the story that were, because I didn't want this to be a story about her pain and, yeah. all, and only her reacting to um, to oppression rather than and also cent- centering her own joy and her own desires, whether they be between her and Alex or whether they be about her wanting to become a mermaid. Um, you know, I was lucky in that when I was young, I felt super safe at home. I felt super supported by my family and my cousins. It wasn't until I stepped out of this that safety into school, into PE, into bullies at school, into the stares of people who couldn't, you know, make sense of my body that I started to feel like there might be something wrong with it. And so that's how we end up internalizing that ableism. And I, you know, I didn't want that to be the point of Vero's story. Like she's not here to teach us lessons. You know, she's there to tell her story on her terms. And that's why there's also the definitions because it's all about, you know, if we write, if, if these words get defined by others, uh, what happens when they get defined? And, and there's incredible power in that, right? There's incredible power in how words are defined over generations. And, but you, we forget that somebody shaped those definitions and a whole culture shaped those definitions. That's cultural power right there. So what happens when we shift that power and we start you know, there are people, now we have people who are people of color, who are queer, who are disabled, who are trans, who are all these things, rewriting those definitions and, you know, getting to tell their stories. It's funny because I work in the legal field when I'm not working for Feminist Book Club and 90% of my work is definitions, how things are defined, who makes that definition and what ripple effect does that definition have? And I wonder if that's why I related so strongly to that point, because words are my bread and butter in a very different way than yours, (laughs) (laughs) but they're still my bread and butter. Um, And I think it's something, I don't think, I know that people do not pay attention to those definitions until they're lobbied at them, you know, and then it, it becomes wait a minute, whoa, 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 where did this even come from? And then that examination starts. Um, And what would it be like if we thought about that earlier? Or if we, if we unbat, like if we created some space so that we could define what those things mean, it's like the, it's like uh, when Spanish people want to argue between Latinx, Latinx, Latino, Latina, like language is dynamic and ever evolving. And if you don't know where a word came from or the baggage behind that word, why are you capping so hard for it? Why are you capping so, so hard for it? Um, And why are you so willing to shut out the experiences of others? What's that about? And what kind of internalized what internalized feelings do you need to work through in therapy, my guy? Like, <laughs> so many good questions there. Um, and then <clears throat> we're going to end with my favorite part of the book, which isn't to say that Vito isn't my favorite part of the book, nor the mermaids, but Alex. Yay, Alex. So, I love talking about Alex. Alex is, no lie, the perfect teenage boy. The perfect teenage boy. He is the teenage boy that I would have wanted to date, that I did not date. Mm-hmm. I dated guys like 
Mr. Man that she had the encounter with in the hot tub. And that was an actual, (laughs) it didn't happen to me in a hot tub, but it did happen to me in a pool bathroom. And that's why I don't go into them anymore. But uh, Alex comes in and he has got his own baggage. Yeah. But he is dealing with it by way of parents who are supportive of him going to therapy and like really trying their best to be overbearing. Like I've got you here, read this self-help book, drink a green smoothie kind of thing. And that comes with its own problems. I imagine, but it's so different from what Vito has. Right. But anyways, he takes all of that and he's just so he sees Vero for Vero and not anything else. And he just loves her for who she is. And I just, ugh, <laughs> I swoon. I swoon. And I'm a grown adult. I should not be swooning over this teenage boy. But I'm just like, oh. And then he has a bad day and he doesn't take it out on her. But he like lets her into his work. Ugh, I just, <laughs> I can't. I can't. I can't. How is is Alex modeled after someone in particular or is Alex just kind of like an amalgamation of good qualities? Um, And what is, what is next for Alex and Vero in your mind? Like they're, they're going to go to their senior year. They're going to start school. Is he going to be awesome to her when they're in school? Like, Oh, tell me everything. Tell me everything, please. I need to know. You know, okay, so Alex has such an interesting journey because the first, I wrote the first chapters of this novel several times and then tossed it out and wrote it again. And in one of the very first iterations, it was Alex and Vero, you know, sitting by the lake that they're, um, that, that they are at in the very beginning. Mm-hmm. But she was uncomfortable with the way he was looking at her scars and asking about them. And I remember I sent that version of the story to a friend, a really trusted friend who first, who I was kind of envisioning him being like a love interest, but then kind of antagonistic. Um, because for me, growing up as a teen who was disabled, who had these scars that Vero has and who walked the same way she did. My experiences with boys weren't always great. And there was this really strange pattern of being um, seen as a sexual person and then being made to feel ashamed for my body Mm. and then desexualized. And so when I first started writing that, I guess that's the path I was taking with Beto was that she was somehow going to be embarrassed by Alex and it just didn't feel right. And I had a friend who also mentioned like, please don't let Alex, like like I, I told you my friend, she's like, please don't let, let Alex be the bad guy in this. And when she said that it made me, it kind of just clicked in my head that I have this hesitation writing it this way because I don't want for Vero what I went through when I was a kid. I want better for her. I want, you know, she deserves a beautiful, healthy relationship just as much as I did, just as much as any young person going through what, you know, what we, these similar experiences deserves. And so it really just changed the whole approach of the book. And then my friend went one step further and asked, what's the promise you would make to Vero? Because I kept telling her like, I'm stuck, I'm stuck, I don't know. And when she said, what's a promise you would make to Vero? The thing that just kept coming up for me was, I will keep you safe. And that's what ended up guiding the story between her and Alex, because she's someone who has had really difficult experiences. Um, You know, this isn't really a spoiler, but she has a really hard experience with another boy in a hot tub scene that has as much, it's just a very vulnerable, intimate moment where he makes fun of her body. Yeah. And the ways that her body exists because of her disability. And so that's something that she was already carrying. And why would I then further traumatize her? You know, I wanted her to be able to find someone 
um, who would see her as her whole, as she deserves. And, and the same for Alex, you know, he has depression and he's on his own journey of healing. And in, in, a, in, a, in a way they get to process their invisible and visible disabilities together and they get to see and hear each other in, in a way that I hoped, um, you know, would, would just help them and, and, and would make them feel loved and safe and cradled. And, you know, I love, it's funny that you say perfect for Alex, because I mean, I didn't necessarily see him as a perfect character, but sometimes I worried and I was like, oh, what if he's, it's not realistic enough. And then I thought, you know what, like reality sometimes can be hard enough. And if we're not modeling, if yeah. we're not seeing in like books are supposed to help us imagine, they're supposed to um, expand our imaginations for possibilities. And so if I can't write a you know, a, a relationship where someone else can see it and say, you know, I deserve that. And then someone else might read it and say, hey, I want to be that kind of partner. Like, yeah. why not? Yeah, yeah. And like, have bad examples. <laughs> I really, you make such a good point. Like, I read almost exclusively. I very, very rarely venture out of sci-fi, magical realism, fantasy worlds my whole life is my whole literary journey for the most part has been about imagining what could be yes what could be regardless of when in time and space and anything Mm -hmm. uh in realities but what could be and I think that if I was a writer if I could write more than very dirty limericks, uh, (laughs) I would, I would want that. I would want to show the best. And as a parent who has kids who are starting to read more than just like board books or little kid chapter books, you know, I want them to see not just how hard the world is. And I think, Honestly, as child, as children of immigrants, we know how hard the world is. Exactly. That's the thing. It's already like, I don't see the point in making my characters suffer for the point of plot or conflict when they're already living in worlds and living in a body that will have plenty of um, conflict or oppression and judgment or harm thrust upon them at any moment. And just to even be writing their truths, sadly, they're often already carrying that as it is. Um, as was the case with Vero, you know, and, and so I just didn't want to perpetuate that cycle through this story that just made her go through more of it. I, I wonder, I hear a lot from um, different like accounts on TikTok or Twitter or whatever, uh, disabled or disability activists who say, I am a more than my disability, right? Duh, kind of point blank. But then they also talk about things, like you said, that they're sexualized, but somehow not. They're infantilized, but somehow not. And it's like all of these different intersections, but nobody wants to see the whole map. They just want to see this very narrow, like, you're such an inspiration. Gross. Um, And you get to be a full person, no matter what you have to you have to be a full person no matter what. And um, no one part of that deserves to be erased. It, you know, yeah. That's also, you know, Vero, you know, in the very beginning, she's always so embarrassed about her scars. And I mean, I'm not going to spoil it, but I am not ashamed of my scars. You know, I also don't want them to become fetishized and, and, and objectified in this way that's uh-huh. like, oh, they're battle marks or whatever. Like, why does everything have to be a battle? Yeah, but um, yeah, she's not remotely the same. But in the mommy sphere, they talk about your stretch marks as being like battle wounds, and I'm just like, no, bitch, it's just skin. Like that's all it is. It is not some sort of. No, no, (laughs) let's not. And you think about how many other arenas in life, and I wonder if it's an American thing. But how many other arenas in life we give this battle language to Yeah, that really shouldn't, like, why are we giving it battle language? Why are we making it a conflict? And why can't 
if we saw it in a different way, would that change how we approach people, how we approach treatment, how we approach right. all of it? Um, I think on the real victory, really, if it, you know, on the other side of that is, is just to be allowed to exist. I mean, yeah. that's why I love um, body neutrality, which isn't about saying um, that your scars are ugly or beautiful or that your disability is an inspiration or something to be ashamed of. It just, we have to allow people to exist and, yeah. and to exist as they're in their wholeness and um, to not make it harder for them to exist. Uh, and it also sometimes, even, even when people think they're being positive, it, I don't, you know, when I was just recovering from surgery recently and I would walk around, um, I would use my walker and I could feel myself being perceived at all moments, sometimes, and the thing that I didn't know is if am I being perceived positively or am I being perceived negatively? And either way, I didn't appreciate it because when I was being perceived positively, it was almost as if people were too eager to help me in ways that I've never even asked for. And I didn't, I was like, no, I don't need that. You know, <laughs> no, it's just, it, you know, and then the flip side of that is when there are no, there's no access and no accommodations, which I experienced as well. And so I just want to exist. Like, that's it. That's all I want. Yeah. I just want to exist. And sometimes when you don't want to exist, that's okay too. <laughs> just, just to be, I, I, yeah, the perception of self is so hard. The external perception of yourself is so hard because it's so thrust upon you. And that's just yeah. the worst. Um, this is there thinking they know your stories. And, you know, that's right. That's really why Vero is all about wanting to tell her own story. And, and, and that's why we all should just be allowed to exist and be the ones who are trusted with our stories. Absolutely. And allow others to read our stories in the way that we want to present them without some sort of bullshit white savior narrative or, or uh, like this idea that, like you said, somehow it has to be watered down or otherwise adjusted to be wide reaching. <laughs> yeah. I think that really takes us full circle. Um, right. I, do you, do you have anything else that you want to plug, um, like a sequel to breathing countback from 10 where, uh, <laughs> I get to follow them in their senior year of high school. And I get to see what Vito does and how she decides to live her life. Like, does she go, where does she go to college? What does she decide to do? Does she even go to college? Does <laughs> she like, what, what happens next? I mean, I'm not, I'm not pushing you or anything. I'm just, <laughs> just asking, just, just oh, one. That would be a dream. <laughs> I really fell in love with these characters. So that would be a dream. Could you imagine like you would have then a book that covers Vero from the teen that you wanted to see growing up to the young adult that you wanted to see growing up to potentially the adult that you are now, like what a, beautiful trilogy that I'm envisioning for you. Oh, we love to see it. Um, but yeah, did you, do you have anything upcoming that you're able to talk about or is right now your world breathing count back from 10? It's yeah. My world right now is breathing count back from 10. And I mean, I always have other things going on that I really can't, I mean, I can't talk about it right now, but I do think that this book, I think because it's so rooted in so many of my personal experiences and I just, I feel very immersed in it right now. I'm, I'm, I'm constantly thinking about Vero. I think writing her actually helped me so much in my own journey with my hip dysplasia. Wow. I didn't realize at the time that I was writing her that she was facing decisions that I would have to face myself. And in some strange ways by even just having to sit with my body and write about chronic pain, write about what it's like to, um, to, you know, to be her, which is very similar and rooted in my own experience. I had to be listening to my body in a way that I had not listened to it before. And so much of ableism 
quiets our voices and makes it so that we don't give voice to our pain or to our experiences because we don't want to be burdens. Yeah. And so to have to really, again, listen to that, to those voices and to look to my body was incredibly freeing. And it helped me advocate for myself in ways that I'm just grateful for and, and grateful to the story for. Absolutely love that so much. And it's not just because I'm pregnant that I'm tearing up because it's like legitimately, is that not the best outcome for any piece of literature, right? Is that you get to, I love it. I love it. Well, anyways, on this note, uh, everybody follow Natalia Sylvester on all of her Instagrams, all of her Twitters, all of her everything. Those will be linked in the show notes. Um, and you can also follow me if you're so inclined. Don't really, cause I don't, I don't really tweet about much. Uh, <laughs> all I'll be tweeting about next is having this baby and, uh, dealing with all of that, but definitely follow feminist book club on Instagram at your feminist book club box and at Twitter, uh, at F M N S T book club. And, you know, we'll see you on the next page. Have a good one, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for brownie points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. Well, Red Woman is a dangerous creature, creature.